Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. You've been here the last few weeks, you may be a little confused, so we moved around a little bit out of order, and so now we are catching back up to where we were. Uh, We are going to be in the first six verses of Matthew chapter 7. I've heard it said that the first verse of this chapter may have replaced John 3.16 for the best-known verse in the Bible, and maybe not always for the best of reasons, but we will see. So let's read together. I'll I'll read for us Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This is the Word of the Lord. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Let's pray together again. Heavenly Father, as As I've studied this passage, perhaps other people feel this way as well. As I've studied this passage, you do start to see more and more areas where I start to see more areas where I personally fall short of what is commanded by our Lord in this text. It is challenging to our own inherent self-righteousness that wants to vindicate ourselves and always shift the blame to someone else. So, Lord, please rescue us from this sinful, universal tendency among humanity, and I pray that you would give us a hatred of this judgmental spirit that we have all fallen victim to and given ourselves to at different times. I pray that you would help us to see it, to repent of it, and to flee from it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, this is perhaps the most quoted sentence in the whole Bible. I don't know how you prove that, but this is just sort of my instinct. I think perhaps the phrase, judge not that you be not judged, maybe, maybe the most quoted statement in the entire Bible today. I'm not sure of that. It's certainly in the top 10 and maybe in the top five of most commonly used statements in Scripture. And I will say it's probably one of the most misunderstood statements in Scripture as well. Let me, let me, quote a theologian here. I'll tell you who it is in just a second. One theologian said this, this passage is, quote, frequently abused and misapplied by the enemies of the Christian faith. This, this passage is frequently abused and misapplied. You say, who said that? Well, it was said by J.C. Ryle, who was born more than 200 years ago. So it is not new that this verse has been used and even misused uh, throughout church history, I suppose. It has always been. There is a tendency Uh, I think one pastor pointed this out. There's a tendency to reduce our Bible to two verses. One is Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. And the other is 1 John 4, 16, God is love. And if that's your entire theology, my guess is you're going to be in trouble. 
Because we don't just need two misunderstood verses to form our whole understanding of God and the Christian life. We need all of what God says applied rightly to all of the Christian life. And so we must balance out and understand what is said in light of other Scriptures and read things in context. But before I get ahead of myself, let me just boil the sermon down to a single sentence. Sometimes hard to do this, but trying to boil this down to a single sentence. Here's my best shot at, at, at summarizing the passage. Without sacrificing biblical discernment, without sacrificing biblical discernment, we generally need to be more critical of our own sins than we are of others. Without sacrificing biblical discernment, we generally need to be more critical of our own sins than we are of others. Let me start with without abandoning biblical discernment. You know why I add that phrase there? That's important. It is no accident that verse 6 follows verses 1 through 5. If you look at your Bible there, let me read verse 6 again. I'm actually going to go through the passage backwards in a sense. I'm going to start with verse 6. Let me read verse 6 again. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Now, you, you've probably heard the proverb that says, remember Proverbs, it's Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do you remember these two Proverbs? The, the first time you read them, you think, is that a typo? So, the, this is what it says. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. You know the next verse? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You know, in Scripture, sometimes intentionally provocative statements that sound on the surface contradictory are put side by side. Why? To make us think. It takes wisdom to understand what that means. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And the question is, when do you know when to do one, and when do you know when to do the other one? And the answer is wisdom, right? Sometimes you must rebuke the, the, the fool lest he be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes you should not, lest you be like him. And so, wisdom is taking two statements that seem intention, and you think about them critically, and you ask for wisdom, and you start to discern when you do one and when you do the other. Now, Jesus is doing something very similar in this passage. Can you tell? The first five verses, he warns against being judgmental. And then verse six, he says, but don't be so undiscerning that you don't know who a dog is and who a pig is. Do you see? Verse 6, now, okay, this, in our culture, it's saying this out loud, people want to call the, the, the law enforcement, okay? What are you saying? Okay, now listen here. In verse 6, Jesus is saying, okay, I, I didn't make this up. Okay, this, this, I, I, verse 6 is not something I made up. Jesus is saying there are people who are dogs, and there are people who are pigs, and do you need discernment to judge who they are and who is not a dog and a pig? Yeah, if you get that wrong, you're in big trouble. You know, if you say, well, I don't like this person, therefore they must be a dog and a pig. No, no, no. We need to have discernment. But Jesus is clearly asking us to, to not throw our mind out when He says, do not judge. Do you, you get what I'm saying? Judge not. And a few verses later, you better judge. Who's a dog? Who's a pig? You should not cast your pearls before the pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. The picture is pretty vivid. Here's the picture. Don Carson paints this picture. You're, a man is walking down the street back in the ancient days, 
Dogs and pigs were not your, your best friends, okay? It's not Babe the pig that every kid loves. It's not the cute puppy that you have at your house. Dogs in the Bible, I hate to say this to the dog lovers in the room, dogs are universally spoken of negatively in Scripture, okay? In heaven, it says outside are the dogs, okay? This is, this is representing unbelievers, those who reject the faith. So dogs are negative in the Scripture, and so are pigs. Here's the picture. A man is walking down the road in hungry pigs and dogs. Think wild boar when you think pig. Think, think mangy animal, a, a pack of dogs, wild dogs out doing no good. You, a man is walking through the city and he looks over and he sees some, a wild, some wild boar and some, some mangy dogs coming around. They're really hungry. They're starving. And they turn toward this man and they start snarling at him. And they start running at this man. And this man happens to be carrying some very valuable things. He has pearls. Remember the, the pearl of great price is like the kingdom in Matthew 13? A pearl is a thing of ma- incredible value, like a diamond in our mind was a pearl in this culture. And imagine this person being chased by these wild boars and these dogs starts throwing the, 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 the pearls out uh, on the ground, hoping it will distract them. And all these hungry animals see the pearls and they think it's food and they reach down, they start gobbling them up. And suddenly their teeth are not feeling so good. They're crunching on these really hard pearls. This doesn't taste good. This is not what they want. They don't understand the value of these things. They spit them out of their mouth, and they turn, and they tear this man to pieces. That's what Jesus said. That's, that's, what, the, that, that's what He said. So we've got to understand what does that mean. So we must judge rightly. The whole Sermon on the Mount is full of judgments, isn't it? Do not be proud. Be poor in spirit. Do not lust, even in your heart. He says, do not be unlawfully divorced. Do not sinfully retaliate. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. All these are moral judgments. The sermon is full of moral judgments. Jesus is clearly not denouncing all moral judgments. Look at verse 15 in the same chapter that we are in. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Jesus is not saying we don't judge in some sense. We don't discern. We don't make moral judgments regarding who is a false teacher and who is a true teacher. Later in Matthew, Jesus will say, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Talks about church discipline. In 1 Corinthians 5, this passage is amazing. Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but we should purge the evil person from among us. Or John 7, 24, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The same Jesus that said, judge not, also said, John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So we should not judge superficially, we should judge righteously and truly. And we should not judge out of a judgmental spirit. That's what Jesus is really getting at in this passage, a hypercritical spirit. Just a little point of application, nothing overly profound. It's probably obvious, but I can't commend this enough. One way to develop biblical and godly discernment, obviously reading Scripture is a non-negotiable for developing discernment. That should go without saying. Prayer for wisdom, discernment. But let me just say, we cannot underestimate the value of reading solid, godly Christian books. 
to develop the habit of reading solid, godly, biblical books is a habit that will repay you a hundredfold in this lifetime. If you're one of those people, and we've all fallen prey, that scrolling and screens are far easier than paper and ink, right? It's just, it's so much easier to be on the device than to open a book. I feel like I'm in the 1700s when I open the book up. I want to I look at a screen. If that is your temptation, we've all fallen prey, I would challenge you to, to truly begin to build a habit where every day, and I know some people are extraordinarily busy and I understand that, but if every day you could just build, carve out a little bit of time, in addition to some scripture reading, carving out time for reading solid, godly Christian books, a book like J.I. Packer's Knowing God or whatever, R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God, just finding places to carve out those time to read I think could be wonderful in helping us build biblical discernment and a love for the Lord. Now, let's move a little further here. In the New Testament, you have examples of, remember the scenes where people will shake the dust off their feet? Remember that? That would be an example of when some group has crossed a line into scoffing and the apostles say, okay, these people are no longer in any way open to us. We're going to kick the dust off our feet. We're going to go somewhere else. That would be an example of not casting your pearls before swine. At a certain point, the enemy is so hostile that they are so unbelieving, so full of scoffing, so full of persecuting. At a certain point, even the apostle Paul will say, I'm going to let the dust on my feet bear witness at the final judgment that this place was not open to the gospel. He dusts off his garment or his feet, and he moves on and preaches the gospel somewhere else. And it takes real discernment to know when that level is reached. I mean, there could be a tendency to be way too quick on this and say, well, my family just, uh, they, they bother me, and so they must be a, a bunch of pigs and dogs, and so I'm not going to share the gospel with them anymore. We, we could be, I think the tendency is actually to be way too slow to speak than rightly knowing when not to speak, if you understand what I mean. I think we're way too slow to speak than too slow not to speak. But either way, we need discernment on this issue. Let me give you one example of Jesus, I think, not casting his pearls before swine. You can turn there, Matthew 21, just to your right, a few chapters. Matthew 21. This is, I think, a good example of Jesus not casting pearls before swine. This is the last... uh, week of his life, Passion Week, right before he was crucified. These are some of his final confrontations with the Pharisees. Matthew 21, starting in verse 23. And when, this is Matthew 21, 23. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe in him, John the Baptist? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all know, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Do you see it? Jesus puts them through a test to see if they honestly want to know the answer or if they're just trying to trick them so they can kill them. That's that's what this is, right? And so Jesus goes, okay, before I answer your question, I'm not afraid to answer your question, let me first ask you a question. John the Baptist, was he from God or was he just man-made? 
and they have to get in their little huddle. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, these are all the the theological PhDs, right? The theological PhDs. They get into a huddle, and what do they do? They go, this is a pretty basic question. Is John the Baptist a legitimate prophet or not? And they've had years to think about this. And they go, well, now you notice their question is nothing about whether it's true. They never debate whether he actually is or not. All they debate is the pragmatic results of what they will say. That's it. They go, okay, if we say option A, he will ask us why we did not believe in him, and we'll look really bad. If we say option B, that he's just a phony prophet, the crowd knows better and they'll try to kill us. So, let's just say we don't know. So, all the PhDs, they all have their doctoral theses, they turn turn around, they go, okay, um, John the Baptist, we have no idea whether he's legit or not. And Jesus goes, okay, then you've just determined that you're not sincere. You are pigs and swine. You're not actually sincerely asking your question, you're just trying to trap me, so I'm not going to answer your question either. And he walks away. Do you see? That's Jesus practicing what he preaches in that particular context. But let me warn, we need to be very slow before we deem who is in that category. We need to be very slow before we do that ourselves. I will just add another little application point here. I know one place where you should not cast your pearls. It is comment sections on the internet. Please run as far away as you can. If you've ever gotten caught up in a debate in a comment section, first of all, don't raise your hand because... We've done it too, but we, we're, we're all embarrassed about that fact, okay? Does anything good ever come from a YouTube comment discussion or whatever? No, nothing has ever good come from that. You do not have sincere people seeking truth normally. You just have scoffers. And so let's not waste our time for hours trying to convince online people of what we believe. That's usually not the most productive use of time. We could find something better to do. Okay, so that's clearly the end of the text shows us that we do need discernment, but what does the first half of the passage mean? The first five verses what exactly does this passage mean? Well, let's, let's read it again. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log, when, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, Don Carson just very simply says, here's what that means. Don't, do not judge. Simply, it means this. Do not be judgmental, as in, do not adopt a critical spirit or a condemning attitude. You understand that? Discernment is one thing. I mean, our whole Sunday school series, this, this, for the last how many months in the gym, we've been criticizing a lot of things in our culture every single Sunday for an hour every week. But it's different to be here what, what it's being condemned is a critical and condemning attitude, okay? That's not the same thing as discernment. It's an attitude that is bent on and almost delights in finding flaws in everyone around you, okay? That's a critical or judgmental spirit. J.C. Ryle, over a hundred years ago, writes this, what our Lord means to condemn is a censorious and fault-finding spirit. I mean, you're just looking for the faults, right? That, that you're, you're an investigative person looking for faults in the people you live around, with people that you know. A readiness to blame others for trifling, small, minor offenses or matters of indifference. A habit of passing rash and hasty judgments. A disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them. This is what our Lord forbids. Now, even as I read this, don't, don't you feel the conviction? I mean, as you think about what this is saying, no one in this room is guiltless on this issue. Spurgeon, 
writes, Surely if I know myself rightly, I need not send my judgment around to try other men, for I can give it full occupation in my own conscience to try the traitors within my own chest. The judging faculty is best employed at home in our own hearts. Our tendency is to spy out splinters in other men's eyes and not to see the beam in our own. Is that not true? Listen, part of being fallen in this world is that, we quote this all the time, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand the heart, right? Now, let me try to apply that for a second. We know that verse, I hope, but let's apply that. This means that we are from birth. We are hardwired in our fallen nature. We are hardwired to rationalize our own misbehavior and to be censorious and severe in our rebuke of other people's misbehavior. This, this, this is something you do not teach young children. This is something that is hardwired in us from the earliest days imaginable. When you do something wrong and you get called on it, you have 10 very persuasive reasons why it was not so bad after all. And when your brother or sister or spouse or your coworker or the student that sits next to you in school all day, when they do something wrong, when they forget to help you like they said they would, or when they forget to bring the thing they said they were going to bring, what do we feel? We feel what we think is righteous indignation all of a sudden. Well, see, we are so easy on ourselves, and we are so naturally severe on other people. I'm going to talk about this more at the end. I'm going to make an application towards marriage in particular, because I think there's an important way of applying it there. I'll just go ahead and say this early before I get to that in more detail. When it comes to marriage problems, and I don't consider myself to be the marriage expert here, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying that. But when it comes to marriage problems, generally speaking, this is just true the vast majority of times. And if you, you probably can testify that you've seen this yourself. We've probably participated in this if you're married. The vast majority of times in marriage issues, the husband sees with 20-20 vision the flaws of his wife. And the wife sees with 20-20 vision the flaws of her husband and they are almost entirely blind to their own problems. That's how marriage problems develop very often. Because so long as I am focused on my wife's shortcomings, and she is focused on my shortcomings, we have the makings of a very bad marriage. And we are naturally wired to excuse ourselves and to be very intense in our accusations of others, which means we are naturally wired to point the finger, but not at ourselves. That is part of the fallen condition of man. And if you do not think that that is a struggle that you have, I would suggest that you are very blind to the sinfulness and temptations of your own heart. I would ask that you would ask the Lord to show you, search me, O God, and know me. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any way within me that is going in the wrong direction and reveal that to me. We are told in, in, in Hebrews that God's Word is a sword that pierces and penetrates through joints and marrow, through the, through the soul and spirit, exposing exposing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We, we need the, the God to do surgery on our heart. We need God to say, I mean, this is very hard to do. This is very painfully hard to do. I'm serious. To, to go before the Lord and say, God, right now I am here to deal with my sin and no one else's. And Lord, I'm asking you, please. I mean, how, this is very, very hard to, to mean this, to sincerely mean this. Like from a truly sincere perspective, say, Lord, I want you to use your word this week to show me what is wrong with my motives and my actions. 
Show me the sin that I know is there and I'm probably blind to. Reveal it to me so that I can repent of it, find full and free forgiveness in Christ, and see the sanctifying work of your spirit. Help me to put to death the deeds of the body by your spirit that I might live, that I might find life in you, that I might find freedom in Christ, that I might find joy and peace in Christ. I mean, so often, so often, the, 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 you know, Scott mentioned languishing, the, the languishing text. So often what happens when, when I'm languishing, what, what happens is I'm, I've got one foot in walking with Jesus, and I got one foot in the, the sort of numbness or in sin. You kind of split, right? And what happens when you, when you split, and you're, you're kind of halfway in, halfway out spiritually, that's the most miserable place to be. Because what you're doing is you're rationalizing your sin, you kind of know you need to change some things, but you're just sort of justifying it, it's okay. You're going to have no sweet fellowship with the Lord when you're embracing those patterns. No sweet fellowship no deep sense of nearness, no, no sweetness in reading the Word. The Word is going to feel stale. The Spirit is going to feel far away, even though he is, he is there, but we're not going to sense His nearness in the same way. But my, 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 when we say, Lord, search me and show me what's wrong with me. Let your Word do surgery like a sword on my heart and reveal the thoughts and intentions of my heart. And then give me deep repentance and mourning and grief over my sin and help me to repent and turn from it. And in those moments when we truly step over and we say, I want to walk with the Lord, I do. My goodness, the Lord opens the floodgates, the joy and the peace that comes with that. But Jesus says we are so often stuck in this mindset of saying, hey, over there, I see you. You, you've got a, um, you got something in your eye. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. What, what, what do you see? You're walking over to the person. You got this sticking out of your face, right? You, I, I picture like a, a stool, just picking a stool, but just sticking it into your face. I, I did that. I, was, I teach high school students. I did that one time in class. I just picked the stool up and stuck it to my face. They thought, uh, what, what's going on? I said, you know, yeah. So I, I did. I acted out. I won't do that for your own sake right now. But yeah, you, imagine somebody with a two by four just sticking straight out of the front of their face. You, people say Jesus never had humor. This is funny. Okay, this is funny. It's funny in a very biting and convicting way, but it's definitely humorous. Jesus goes, imagine a guy walks up to you. I mean, Jesus would have known a lot about woodworking. You've got this two-by-four, this, this beam just sticking straight out of the front of your face. This person walks up to you, and you're going, what is going on with this guy? And this guy walks up and goes, excuse me, I, I see you have a problem. Y you do? <laughs> yes, I see you have, a, you have something in your eye there. Let me, let me help you out. And he gets out his tweezers, hold still, I'm going to try to get that out. He's just smacking you on the head every time he turns toward you. I mean, this, there's humor for sure in this passage. And then Jesus turns the humor almost like a knife at this point and says, you understand when you are nitpicking everyone around you that you live with and care about, when you're nitpicking your kids and all their flaws and just can't stop telling them about everything they're doing wrong, when you take your students and you're just too harsh with them when they fail, you just come at them too strong in class. I've done that before. I've had to apologize to students because I just got, I allowed my irritability just to come out and I said something too harsh and I'm like, wow, that was bad and I have to go apologize later. I've had to do that more than once as a teacher. So these moments where we see their sin so clearly, we just come at them. But Jesus says, have you stopped first and recognized the self-justification that you've been a part of to persuade yourself that that beam is not really a beam? and that you don't really have anything to deal with of your own. I think a lot of problems, maybe all the problems, so I, don't, I won't overstate it, many of the problems in the world would be solved if we would simply do what this text says. Imagine this. Imagine all of us, imagine all of us this week were more aware of our personal shortcomings and sins than the shortcomings of anyone else in our lives. Can you imagine what you would be like this week? 
Imagine this week, your number, the number one thing that bothered you this week was not your over-busy schedule. The number one thing that bothered you this week was not the stress at work. The number one thing that bothered you is not what your relative has been saying about you and that you just found out about that isn't true. What if the number one thing that bothered you this week was your own personal sin against a holy God? You know what that would create? And by God's grace, I've seen this in this room, okay? I've seen this myself, the fruit of this in this room uh, among the people here present today. But what we would see is we would see people who are truly broken over their sin and truly humbled by their own shortcomings, and that will change the way that we are in our demeanor when we actually do have to take the speck out of our friend's eye. See, Jesus doesn't say you ignore the specks in other people's eyes. You don't obsess over them. We don't dwell on them too much, but there are times. There are times where we have to confront a, a, a person we love about a speck in their eye. But my goodness, we better have done a whole lot of heart surgery on our own life long before we get to that point, uh, long before we get to that point. Just to mention some other texts, I'm just going to read them quickly. You don't have to turn to all these. Just some parallels here. James 2, 12, 13 says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If we are marked by mercilessness in our judgments, when we face God on the final day, we will receive a judgment from God without mercy because we will bear witness to the fact that we have not truly known the gospel of grace. A deeply, profoundly judgmental spirit eventually could indicate that someone is not even a believer. How about Romans 2? This is a great description. Romans 2.1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another... You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Then he says this, Romans 2.21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Are we using a double standard? With the measure I use, it will be measured against me. Am I using unequal weights and measures in my relationships? See, when I'm late to an appointment, I always have a great reason, right? I always have a great, and sometimes there are legitimate reasons why we're late, right? But when someone else is late, I can be so much more severe and on and on. We need to not use two different standards, but we should use the standard of Scripture. Judging others involves being nitpicky. Now, let me read a, a, a smattering of verses across both Testaments. Listen to these. Some of these are very well known. The love chapter, listen to this. Love is patient and kind. It is not irritable or resentful. The NIV translates resentful. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that we ignore serious, flagrant, willful, unrepentant sin in those that we love. If there is a flagrant, willful, continuous pattern of obvious sin in a loved one, we owe it to them to, to confront them and to speak to them. That's true in a humble way. But love covers a multitude of sins. You know what that means? Anytime you have 100 people in a room or 100 people in a church, 
We are all, in small ways mostly, and maybe sometimes in big ways, but mostly in small ways, we're going to wrong each other. I mean, we're going to use the wrong tone of voice sometimes. We're going to be too short with each other sometimes. We're going to forget certain things about other people at certain times that we should have remembered. We're going to be thoughtless. We're going to say something insensitive, and we didn't mean to say it. One time, I won't even say what it was. One time in this room after a service, I said something so unbelievably thoughtless and insensitive that it took me like months to get over. I couldn't believe it. I, I said something so unintentionally offensive. I just was stunned by it. I, I just had to apologize. I was like, I'm sorry. And it was, it was awful. I was so ashamed. So we, we, we're going to do it. We're, we're going to do it. We don't want to do it. It's going to happen. We're, we're going to inadvertently or sometimes even advertently, we're going to in some ways sin against each other in this church. Even though we love the Lord, we're still going to have flaws and failings. And you know what love does? Love covers over the offense. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love doesn't say, well, three months ago you said this, so now it's my turn for vengeance. (laughs) Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Yes, there are times to call out sin, but it's not every time. You hear that? There are times to call out sin. It is not every time. It's not even most of the time. Most of the time we are called to, uh, to cover a multitude of sins. Now, I want to bring this to a conclusion. I mentioned about marriage. And if you're not married or if you're having issues in other relationships, then just apply this to that. But I'm going to use marriage, and I'm going to read a long quote as I move toward a conclusion here from uh, John Piper, who preached this, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. Now, he uses the words compost pile, manure, and cow pie. Are you ready for this? So just prepare yourself where this is going, okay? So uh, I thought this was actually a really helpful illustration, despite the fact that those words are used several times. Here we go. So he's talking about how you deal with marriage problems, and you can apply this in other ways. Quote, the compost pile is not where you and your spouse should live. So the compost representing the problems in the marriage, right? the sins and the failings in the marriage. Picture your marriage as a grassy field. You enter it at the beginning full of hope and joy. The day of your wedding right? You enter your marriage full of hope and joy. You look out on the field and you see beautiful flowers and grass stretching and the rolling hills and trees. It is beautiful and you want to walk in this field all your days. And on the wedding day, you think, the husband, I want this woman. The wife thinks, I want this man. We want to be together, to walk in the beautiful fields of green grass and spring flowers and trees and hills and bright sunshine and cool breezes. That's the way we think it's going to be. But before long, Are you ready? You step in a cow pie. And in some seasons of your marriage, they seem to be everywhere. Like, is this a field or what is this right now going on? This is not grass. This is just manure, it looks like. Late at night, they can become especially prevalent. These are sins, flaws, idiosyncrasies, weaknesses, annoying habits in your spouse. And you try to forgive them and you try to forbear. The problem is they can tend to dominate the relationship. Everywhere you, you step, you see it. It may not be true that they're everywhere. It sometimes may feel that way. I think the combination of forbearance and forgiveness leads to the creation of a compost pile. Now, listen to this, okay? Here at the compost pile, you and your wife or husband begin to shovel uh, all this manure into the pile. Don't you love this? And you put a fence around it. And you keep it in one place. You look, at it, you, you look at each other and you simply admit that there are a lot of unpleasant parts of the marriage. There are unpleasant things in the marriage. And you say, you and I bring a lot of problems into our relationship. And you say to each other, you know, we've got to do this because these problems are all we're thinking about. I mean, we're looking for them. We're almost looking to step in them. So let's 
get them and throw them in one place, and let's throw them in a compost pile. Now listen, compost can do some good things. When we have to, we go, we'll go there and we'll see it. So listen, when we have to, we'll go there and we'll look at the problems and we'll deal with them from time to time. And then we'll walk away from the pile and we'll set our eyes on the rest of the field. This is right at the heart of what I'm trying to say, he says. Satan and our flesh can begin to take a few disappointments, a few frustrations, and multiply them so out of proportion that we think there is no green grass anywhere in the marriage. There are no flowers anywhere. There are no trees, no hills, no sunshine, which is an absolute lie. And then we say to each other, quote, we're going to walk away from that compost pile and set our eyes on the rest of the field. And we're going to pick some favorite paths and hills that we know are not strewn with these problems. And we're going to be thankful that that part of the field is sweet. It may be a small part now, but that part is sweet. Our hands may be, may be dirty and our backs may ache from all the shoveling, but we know one thing. We will not pitch our tent by the compost pile. We will not go live there. We will not retreat there. We will not lick our wounds there. We will go there when we must. This is the gift of grace that we will give each other again and again and again. Why? Because you and I are chosen and holy and loved. Now, I don't think that needs explanation, but let me just add one word of explanation there. In other words, when, when those annoyances come up, it's not that we act like they're not there, but he says you put them in one place. There's a time to talk about them. There's a time to face them and deal with them. But if we live with them, if we just live next to that pile, it is going to cause a absolute, it's going to cause deep problems in the marriage or in the relationship. But he says, we go there from time to time, but we must intentionally walk away and enjoy what God has given us throughout the rest of the relationship. Now, I will say this. If anyone on earth has the right to be judgmental in the sense of truly condemning, it is the Lord Jesus of us. And yet, because of His grace, He has made a way for us to be right with Him. Through His death on the cross, He has taken the sin of all who will turn and trust Him. And if we will simply turn from our sin and trust in Christ, all of our sin will be canceled and we will be clothed in His righteousness, all because of what He has done. So let us learn from Christ's gracious treatment of us to more graciously treat one another. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, sin is a disease. And it really does promote self-righteousness. We may not think that we're anything like the Pharisees, and yet it is so easy. It is so easy. It is natural by our fallen nature to rationalize our shortcomings, to give many supposedly good reasons for why we have them, and to give very little grace to those around us who struggle. God, help us to be more critical of our own selves and more gracious toward others. Help us to see the beam in our own eye and help us uh, to, to deal with that first and foremost. God, if there are blind spots, and everyone in this room has them, blind spots about our own sin, blind spots about our own failings and shortcomings, places we're failing and we don't even see it, God, open our eyes, search us and know us, Show us if there is a grievous way within us and use your word to show and expose the thoughts and intentions of our heart that we might be more fully dedicated to you, that we might more closely walk with the Lord Jesus. And God, we thank you for the grace that you've showed us in Christ. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.